really asking for and asking tough questions. Does poverty drive inequality or does inequality drive poverty? Women just were not able to reach out and to look for support. We may all be in the same ocean, but some are in super yachts and some are clinging to debris. Emissions are expected to rise to their highest ever level. What should we do now? We are in the same world. We work together for a common goal. Hi there, my name is Juliette Gash. I'm a foreign reporter with RTE News and I'm a guest host on Oxfam's First World Problems podcast. We've been holding a live event here in Dublin where we've heard from Jane Merowas. And you might hear a little bit of background noise because it's a live event. You might also hear some of Jane's beautiful beadwork, maybe nudging a little bit against the mic. So do forgive us that. And thank you for joining us. Hello, everyone. Um, my name is Juliette Gash. I'm a reporter with the Foreign Desk in RTE, which is um, Ireland's national broadcaster. Um, just a tiny bit about the format. So we are going to hear shortly from Michael Gaffey, who's the Director General of Irish Aid, after which we will hear from our guest of honour, Jane Merwas. Um, and I'll have a conversation with her, which is all part of marking the 16 days of activism against gender-based violence. So we'll have a good chat about that. Uh, and finally, we'll hear from Oxfam Ireland CEO, Jim Clarkin. So um, first, if I could invite you, please, Michael, up to the podium. Uh, Michael Gaffey is Director General of Irish Aid. Thank you very much. And uh, I know, Jane, it's incredibly cold today. So uh, I think the warm welcome here is all the more important. Um, as I said, we were very worried uh, at the, the warmth of our autumn and early winter uh, and now we're complaining again about the cold, but there you go. Um, so, look, I am really, really honoured to be here today and to welcome uh, you all. The first thing I should do is to thank Oxfam Ireland for organising uh, this event and for their dedication to highlighting and addressing the issues of gender-based violence and climate change. Today is, of course, part of a key global call to action. It is critical, this campaign, the 16 Days of Activism Against Gender-Based Violence. It is a critical campaign that shines a spotlight on the issue of GBV globally and a campaign that we have been proud to support down the years. But as I was saying to Jim when we came in, we've been proud to support the campaign year after year after year after year. And we all have to ask ourselves the question, why is the issue of gender-based violence so pervasive? across the world, but especially in poor and vulnerable communities. But why is it so pervasive in our own societies? There are really difficult questions that we need to ask so that in 30 years' time, we're not embarking on another 16 days of activism against gender-based violence. And it's an issue that can sometimes be seen as a women's issue, but it is above all a men's issue. So I, I just want to say that this is an issue of importance, but it's also an issue of great urgency, and it needs to be addressed with that sense of urgency. Now, we were recently, I was with the Minister in the Horn of Africa, and indeed Juliet covered it brilliantly so that the Irish people could see what was happening in the Horn of Africa. And we saw the impact of climate change and how it accentuates gender inequality and gender-based violence. We saw that very, very clearly. The drought is having devastating consequences for women and children. It's heightening the risk of gender-based violence and it's hampering children's access to education. 
which is absolutely vital for their futures. The displacement of people due to drought compounds protection challenges and the risk of gender-based violence is heightened and the number of child marriages in some communities is also increasing. So this climate emergency, which we say is also the, is a humanitarian emergency, but also linked to conflict, it has a massive, massive gender dimension and cannot be addressed effectively without addressing that gender dimension. And actually, you only have to talk to some of the... Well, talk separately, because that's the way it would be, to the men and the women in the communities that are being devastated and destroyed. And you see the, the, the differing impact. Of course, it's catastrophic for all, but you really see the impact uh, on, on women and, and on girls and the coping strategies that they have compared perhaps to the less effective coping strategies that some of the men have. Ireland has a long-standing reputation as a leader on gender equality and we brought that to bear very much in the negotiations on the Sustainable Development Goals and the establishment of a single standalone goal on gender equality. And gender equality is one of the absolute priorities, as I said, of our policy for international development, a better world. It is fundamental, as I said earlier, for the transformations that are required to achieve the SDGs and to reach the furthest behind first. And we shouldn't be complacent because we know that the SDGs are not going in the right direction. The implementation of the SDGs is not going in the right direction at the moment. We really need to re-galvanise attention on how to make progress on the SDGs. Now, there will be a summit in New York in September, co-facilitated by the Irish ambassador at the UN, uh, to do just that, to assess progress or lack of it and to start the focus really strongly on how we kind of make up the reverses from the reverses that we've had. Women's rights organisations and movements, such as Samburu Women Trust, here with us today, must play and do play a critical role in efforts to achieve gender equality at local, national and global levels. And Ireland has supported work to prevent and respond to GBV in a large number of countries. And of course, we have to recognise that the COVID pandemic made matters even worse. It contributed to a 75% increase in demand for services for women suffering from gender-based violence. Ireland has supported Oxfam to scale up services to respond to domestic violence. And this provided in Zimbabwe support for 1,500 individuals per month and doubled the capacity of shelters for women affected. We've also been working with the UN Women Trust Fund to end violence against women. And we are proud to be an active member for years. And again, I have to stress we've been doing this for years and we need to question as to why we need to be doing it for years. The Irish Consortium on Gender-Based Violence. And this is a really, really important organisation that you don't have in other countries linking domestic and international. And I think that we need to kind of really strongly focus attention on the work of the consortium. It facilitates learning and capacity building of Irish NGOs to respond to GBV. And many of the Irish NGOs funded by Irish Aid have programming to prevent and respond to GBV. I won't say more other than that the consortium has undertaken important research on the link between climate change and gender-based violence. And that's what we'll be discussing today, so I won't say any more on that. I just want to say that the topic is absolutely important. I think there's a greater realisation across the public now of the reality of the climate crisis, that it is all-pervasive, 
that it has an impact on all areas of our lives and of our work, and that we cannot think of humanitarian assistance, development assistance or conflict resolution without taking into account the climate crisis that we are living through. So I think we are really, really fortunate to have Jane here today to give us testimony from an organisation such as Sambura Women's Trust that is addressing the issues every day, that is focusing on the climate crisis as an extreme crisis, while we somehow are still waiting and learning to see how to cope. So I want to thank Oxfam. I want to thank you all. There's a great turnout. And I want us all to continue to raise our voices on the issue, the critical issue of gender-based violence as a humanitarian issue, as a development issue, but above all, as a human issue in our societies. Thank you very much and good luck with you. Thank you very much, Michael, for that. Um, to explain a little bit about why I'm here as part of the 16 days of activism against GBV, um, I travelled to Kenya last August, September uh, for RTE to report on the drought in the Horn of Africa. And I travelled as part of a delegation which included some Oxfam people, Irish aid and also members of the Department of Foreign Affairs here. And it was eye opening in so many ways. Um, Kenya is a beautiful country. The people are very warm and welcoming, but it's a country of huge contrast, which is sometimes very hard to accept. When you arrive in Nairobi, it's, um, it's a vast city, it's changing, it's developing, it's got a big expat community, it's got a burgeoning middle class and all the trappings that come with that. Um, but there are also millions of people living in dire poverty in informal settlements, with what we used to call slums. And to see that and contrast it with the, the beautiful hotels with rooftop pools is hard. But then when we travelled north to see how the drought was actually impacting the northernmost counties, including Samburu. You could see the dried up riverbeds and just the, just the arid, arid land. Uh, very little vegetation. Animals were dying, if, they even, if people even had them anymore. It's a huge pastoralist community. And then a few hours south, we drove south back down to Nairobi. They had these huge farms beautiful farms for miles and miles growing pineapples and beans and exporting them to places like Ireland. And I'm not being dramatic when I say that it drew parallels for me of during the Irish famine, exporting food when people were dying of hunger. And we know that this is the worst drought for the Horn of Africa in 40 years. And one person on average is dying every 36 seconds. Um, and it's just so shocking because this was predicted uh, and people like organisations like Oxfam said this is happening. Um, but there are stories of hope and resilience, no less than, I mean, when we saw them in Samburu, uh, the Samburu partner organisation, Omoja Women's Village, that was just wonderful um, because this is a, a community. We were welcomed. Um, you'll see the, the matriarch of the, of the group, Rebecca we were welcomed and she said, welcome to Samburu, where women rule. And I was like, yes, <laughs> this, is, this is my kind of place. But this is a place of shelter and refuge for, for women. Um, and they find like-minded people, but they also find, I suppose, sanctuary. But they're fleeing um, gender-based violence and violence against women and girls. They come there for safety, for community. Um, but they also manage to learn new skills, um, and escape this life of forced marriage or FGM. Uh, and they learn the skills and the ability to earn enough to send their girls uh, to school. 
and, and how life-changing that can be. Um, just a little bit about Jane before I invite her up. So Jane Marawas is executive director and founder of the Samburu Women's Trust, which is a partner organisation of the Emoja Women's Village you saw there. She's an indigenous woman, a mother, a feminist, a human rights defender and community development practitioner for more than 20 years, advancing the rights of women and girls among indigenous communities in particular. And she's involved in policy development, governance and the humanitarian response in Kenya and beyond. And the Samburu Women Trust itself, it's an indigenous women-led organisation that champions the rights of women and girls among indigenous communities through strengthening and supporting their capacity and agency to influence policies, decision-making processes and addressing the harmful cultural practices while promoting a positive culture. Jane, if you could join us, please. So, listen, who better to come and discuss the, the 16 days of activism? I mean, you, you, you are 16 days, 16 years of activism in, in person. Um, thank you so much for being here. And um, if you could start by telling me a little bit about yourself, how you became involved in, in activism in your life. Thank you so much. The Irish community, the Oxfam, the Irish AIDS for giving me an opportunity to be in your beautiful country. I see Kenya very welcoming. Uh, I also find Irish people very welcoming, despite the cold. <laughs> so it's something positive to talk about. So thank you so much to help me and even giving me the opportunity. So Jean Meruas is a mother, a woman, a child from pastoralist community. And what motivated me to continue advancing girls and women agenda and making sure that women discussions are the center of discussion is that personally uh, I never gotten the opportunity to go to school like any other child or any other girl that when you have children you can make decision so I went to school by a chance because the community I come from we have a lot of culture patriarchy. So as my other colleague from Oxfam said that they have preference for boy and a girl. So they give preference to boys. But in my family, we are two girls. So my elder sister married off at 10 years old. It's not that my dad is poor. He wasn't poor. He had a lot of livestock. Uh, and then me, I was looking after goats because I went to school late around 10 to 12 years old, not like any other normal child that you can begin at three years, four years. So I went to school by chance because I was looking after my father's goats and then I was looking after the goats around nine years, ten years. Then the hyena ate like ten of my father's goats. And my dad was not happy about me, not to be responsible, not to look after his goat well. And then when I came home, I never reported back to him that they were missing goat because personally as a child, I did not actually realize that out of 300 to 400 goats, 10 were missing. So basically, uh, in the evening, I was given a very, a very thorough beating, and my dad decided that uh, I don't add any value in his home. So he said that uh, there was a Catholic mission around Catholic Church, and the Catholic Church was very much strongly advocating that uh, he give a priority to girls who are running from harmful cultural practices, female genital mutilation, or any other person who wants to donate a child so that maybe father can trade with a goat. 
But then my dad did not have an interest with God. So he said, I'm going to take you to the Catholic mission so that you sit there, you wait. If father is not interested with you, maybe you're not interested to go to school or even to learn, you'll stay there for some times. If I get a suitor or a husband, I'll come for you and get the nine goods so that I'm able to repay back the sheep which were eaten by the hyena. That is how my life turned around. And that is how I went to school. And that is how I never looked back up to today. So that was the turning point. Then by then, uh, at around uh, when I was, I think, 16, I was in high school. Unfortunately, or good luck or bad luck, my mom rested. And in a community which I come from that polygamy is celebrated. You can marry many wives, three, four, five. It's not like here. I don't know how my dad navigated around. He never married, so he had one wife, my mom. So in my community, they believe if you pass away, it's like a tree has fallen on you. So there is no continuity. So brother to my dad, regroup. There were many because of polygamy. My grandfather had five wives. My grandmother, where he was born for my dad, he had nine sons and one girl. So they make them ten. And he was the last wife of five. So you can imagine the others. So brother to my uh, dad, they are close like 40. So they group themselves, those who are alive, and they had a, a meeting. And they told my dad, you have to marry. Because you cannot continue. You have two girls. It means your lineage is going to die. So under any circumstance, you have to marry so that you have a son. A son who is going to give you a name to continue. Then my dad said, then we are going to have a conversation with my daughter afterward. Then I'll report back. I didn't know by then I was doing around issues on advocacy. Then I told my dad, if he decided that you're not going to remarry again, because how old are you now? You are close to 70 to 65. You are too old. Then they are bringing a young girl almost close to my age. Do you think that you're going to continue giving more children? And how sure are you that you're going to have a son? I'm not saying that you're not going to marry, but how sure are you that even tomorrow you're not going to die? So it means if you die today and you're married today, you're going to leave me with a lot of responsibility to look after your wife. Do you think you're going to do fair on me? And yet you refuse to take me to school. But again, because you have wealth, you make your own decision. Whatever you're going to make, but don't involve me. For me, if you marry, I'll walk away. I'm only going to use the last name, but I'm not going to be involved. Then he said, he looked down for some time, and then he told me, I'm not going to marry. Then I told him, I was a bit 16, if then you're not going to marry, if God wishes that I finish high school and I pass well, I go to the university or college, then after I finish and I get a job because I believe I'll get a job, I'll come for you and you'll stay with me comfortably. And those are his last wish. He said, yes. So I told him, now you can go back and tell your brothers, but I'm not going to be there. So you tell your brothers so that they don't see me that I'm pushing. You tell your brothers, but that is the agreement between me and you. That was the turning point. So I finished my high school and then immediately, I did very well by good luck. 
And then I went to, to the university. So three years I was in the university. By good luck, there was that continuity of sponsorship. So immediately I finished. Then uh, the, the father in charge of the Catholic mission said that they had received small grant from, I think, Casago, Italy. And they are going to support about women economic empowerment. And he said, this program we are going to get to give Jane to run it. So it was good. So then I told father, I want one wish. I want you help me with a vehicle. I go to get my dad so that my dad can come and live within urban center. Then my dad was very <coughs> uncomfortable. He said, I cannot leave my goat. I cannot leave my cows. I cannot go to live in urban center. Some of those houses are not good. Then I convinced him. He came. And the reason why I wanted my dad, first of all, I was fulfilling my wish that once I get a job, I want to live with you. Secondly, I wanted also for him to be part of my close ally as I talk around issues on women economic empowerment. So when I was going around talking about women, women economic empowerment, having conversations, separate meeting elders, men and women, so I was tagging along my dad. And the reason why I was tagging that I was telling, at the end of the conversation, when I was doing introduction, quickly introduce myself and introduce my dad. Then at the end of the session, I tell my dad, can you do a closing remarks? and tell them why it is important to take a girl to school. And you give an example of me. So first of all, he was referred I told him, it's still okay, it is me. You just give an example of me. These are success stories. So slowly I wanted to change the mindset uh, of, of elders who are mostly the custodian of culture mm. and tell them that if you support a woman, if you support a girl, you've actually educated the whole community. Mm. That is how the turning point of my life mm. And that is what propelled me to continue doing advocacy, being the voice of people who don't have a voice, for people who don't know what is gender-based violence, what is activism, and changing the narrative. And using certain spaces like this, giving hope for those women and girls who have not hope. So that is how my journey is. So thank you so much. Jane, can I ask you as well, um, Obviously, these global campaigns like 16 Days of Activism are so important amongst our community. Do they feel it in your community that, that, that people abroad are, are talking about this and trying to make change? Does it make a difference? 16 Days of Activism is a very good campaign globally, even to the village where I come from. As much as majority of them do not understand what is 16 Days of Activism, what is gender-based violence, how do I report to? But education is very important. And even disseminating this information so that even them who do not understand, understand what we are talking about, celebrating, you know, close to 16 days of activism. What is it to mean as a woman, as a person, as a victim of gender-based violence? But to, back to my village, it is difficult to explain to them. Day to day for them, you even look in the morning and imagine how is it going to end in the day. You don't know. Some of them have customized that gender-based violence is normalized within where they live. They don't know where to report. You don't have the courage. Your self-esteem is down. So basically, they are just there to live in this world. So to me, 16 days of activism mean a lot. Mean that more education needs to be done to the people who understand and to those people who do not understand and more information even to reach those people who it is difficult to be reached. 
What is the experience of gender-based violence among women in your community? How do they experience it? Uh, I've said earlier, gender-based violence in my community is it's day-to-day work, just like even here in Europe. Gender-based violence here is not really rampant because people know their right. If something happened to them, they know where to report to. They know that they are economically empowered and they can walk away. But now they are gender-based violence. You are married at tender age. You got children maybe at 10, at 12. By the time you are 20, you have like six to seven kids. The environment you know, you've never gone to any center which is close like five kilometers. So your environment is surrounding, is that the same person who married you and the family around. So if my husband is a violator, I customize in my mind that it is normal and I normalize it. And I don't know where to run to, who to talk to. And even in a community which gender issue like sex, people don't discuss openly. It is a norm. You don't discuss. Even if somebody raped me, you don't discuss. So the community itself has customized that gender-based violence is normal. If it happened to a woman, it is normal. If you are beaten, it is normal. If you are raped, it's normal. If you've done the child female genital mutilation, FGM, it's normal. So I don't know if they don't know, but also the culture play a critical role towards those vulnerable group like women and girls who don't have economic muscles. Because I believe if you talk about economic empowerment, it's to liberate that person, to have voice, to influence different spaces. But how many of them who can even access those muscles we are talking about? How has the drought and all that that means, how has that impacted women? It has impacted them negatively. But again, we've walked uh, with, with a lot of resilience, with hope, despite the fact that some of these things are pulling us down, just like my story. But we've walked strongly with hope and resilience, despite the fact that a lot of things are pulling us down. We are navigating around and looking for solutions, like, you know, organizing ourselves, like the village you went, organizing ourselves and become like each other's keeper and monitor each other and support each other. If something happened to me, I'll also support you to know where to navigate. So basically, that's how we, we maneuver and support each other and lift each other, despite the lot of issues, you know, climate change, anything that is happening, but you're also holding each other's arms and lifting us, each other. You touched on it there where you, you said you were able to, to change your dad's mind. You know, you changed his point of view. How important is it to have men who are on your side, who are your allies? Being a women-led institution in a community, patriarchy is so dominated and culture is rigid. So what we do is we involve each and every voice, separate elders, young people who are youth, women, girls, boys, and even the teachers within schools when you're doing mentorship. The reason why we involve separate groups that we also women organization is that men are the custodians of the culture. They make each and every decision in the community. So if you don't involve them and women sometimes understand issues that men do not understand, we put more women into trouble and we want them to be their supporting system. And we also we want women to talk to their husband and to their friends to influence different spaces. Then we bring young people like boys, youth, 
talk to them because these are the generation that they are marrying these girls. These girls who are being forced to undergo female genital mutilation. So we want the mindset wholesomely. Young people will stand and say, we are not going to marry girls who have undergone the cut. We want girls who have not undergone the cut. And then elders will also support them. These are our daughters. These are my wife. These are my sister. They are not going to undergo this. They are not going to undergo this. So slowly we are working in a wholesome way that making sure even young girls and boys, we are doing mentorship, especially now in Kenya, schools are closed like two months. This is the worst time of the year where many of our girls are subjected to female genital mutilation. So how do we have them? We have a lot of mentorship and we have like a tree, a lot of mentorship, mentoring them, bringing teachers, bringing young boys, bringing girls, because young boys play a critical role in my community. They know the discussion around that Jane is going to be subjected to female genital mutilation. So you become like your sister keeper. And these girls understand, have self-esteem, build leadership skills, and be able to navigate. If something happened to me, who do I report to? Which area do I run to? So that basically we support them in a way so that we don't just wait for them to undergo female genital mutilation. It's a lot of work, but it's more wholesomely. With the end that our work is to make sure that we are building a society understand despite the patriarchy, the norms, that women and girls also have spaces. And in a community I come from, or even in this society, you don't go anywhere without a woman. We normally see in my community, a man cannot be complete without a woman. You cannot just go to a home, a small homestead built where there is no woman. It is difficult. So women play a critical role in this society and it is important to protect them and give them spaces to make informed decisions. How can the international community help? Uh, in many ways, by becoming our allies, uh, talking in different spaces like this, like even where you visited, uh, documenting. You came at the time that the drought was alarming. But you find that women were very resilient with a lot of hope even despite the situation. So you can also continue supporting these voices because I believe as much as we are women rights championing the rights here in Dublin or anywhere in New York or even in Geneva and other masses of women and girls, are subjected to gender-based violence. They have no voice, they cannot inform. It means we are not making progress. And we want to make progress inclusive of everyone. So that is how you can support us in different spaces you want. You can support you in your own way. Thank you so much to Irish Aid through uh, Ireland Oxfam for continuing supporting us and making sure that voices like those who are excluded uh, in villages that they are not rich that we are able to share our stories, not just of with no hope, but stories of resilience, mm. stories of hope, despite the calamities. Mm. You mentioned it a couple of times, and I think it's worth saying again, that women who are economically independent are safer. I think you have some good examples of that, you know, that there's safety in independence, I suppose. Yes, women who are economically empowered are better off than those women who are not economically empowered. Uh, a good example is me. Jane here is employed and he earns salary. I'm able to say, I want this water without a glass. This is not the glass I want. For that woman who doesn't have anything, you have no choice. You go by what is there. 
For me, I can say I don't want this Opal. I want a Samsung. I want a Nipple. For them, whichever they have, even without phone, they go for that. So economy comes with freedom. It comes with power. Power to influence different spaces. Power that give you anything that you feel your mind is settled. But when you don't have power, you oppress, you are vulnerable, and you are subjected to any space. Yes. We saw her, the 15-year-old girl, and her voice was so small. She sounded like she could have been eight years old, not 15. She just had this little... What was amazing to me was that she escaped. She did that herself. How does someone like that find a community like Umoja Women's Village? How do they make it out and then to a place of safety? Do they, how do they hear about it even? Uh, I think she had through other women. Because it is through other women who supported her to escape in the middle of the night. And she walked like a whole one week from Baragoy far north to Moja, a whole one week. And sometimes she was telling us when it's at night, she climbed a tree and sleep because it's more safe because of wild animals. So with that courage, you can imagine what did she experience so that she can take the risk of running away. The Maspa subject a lot of things. And even to have that confidence, those are some of the hope oh. that give me a lot of resilience to continue championing. When you see a young girl like that one walking a whole week to come for safety, it means our advocacy is reaching somewhere. And it's reaching somewhere that other women can tell others. If something is not working right, there's somewhere else you can run mm. and people can support you. Mm. And to me, it's, it's, those are what I call it, stories of resilience and hope. So slowly, slowly, let's continue with the conversation. Let's continue giving more information, engaging, educating, and supporting. Because the more we give a lot of education, a lot of information, other people will also help others to come in to be saved yeah. in the situation that they are in. And I loved, she was with um, this the old, wonderful the woman, Randale, 86-year-old yes. woman. You know, very basic living conditions, no, no bed to sleep on, just a mat. And she was receiving cash transfers, but the young woman wasn't because she's under 18, so she doesn't get any finance like that. But her deal was that she was getting a home, a safe home, a place to sleep, and she was helping out by cooking and cleaning. And they were just so, you know, they were working out so well in their partnership. And it was just like, wow, this, this works, you know, and it was, it was amazing to see. And the reason why we placed that young girl with the elder woman in the same house is that for social psycho support. Mm. One, uh, to feel that sense of belonging. Two, not to feel, uh, you know, some scary at night. And when you look at the small manyata, we normally made the small doors for them. It's not like this one that you can close with the key. If bad people can come, they can just hit them and go in. But to us, that is security. Mm. That is the immediate security that that, that girl feel like that I'm safe, that nothing is going to happen to me. So slowly, when you meet that girl, currently she is opening up and mm. telling her stories. How she walks, sometimes she laughs, how she walks and how she managed to be there. And to me, that is something that, you know, it warm my heart at the end of the day. It's risky, especially in my work, because people see me as a wife snatcher and mostly that I go against the culture, but that's not going against the culture. That is even demeaning your own child and your own sister for beating her and making her 
more useless. So to me, I normally tell them, I'm not snatching anyone's wife. Neither am I abusing our culture. But you are just challenging some of the things we believe. They are not too friendly to anyone in this world. Okay, well, I think that's a, a good place to end. Um, <laughs> Jane, thank you. Thank you so much. Wonderful to hear from you. And if I could invite you, Jim, to come up and have a quick word, that would be great. Thanks very much, Juliet and Jane. Um, I was asked to kind of try to give a brief reflection on what we've been listening to, which is impossible to do in, <laughs> in a few minutes. So uh, let me just, I suppose, make a few comments more than anything else. Um, the 16 days of activism is a vital moment to reflect and to re-energize around what is ultimately one of the greatest human rights issues of our time and continues to be pervasive across every society in the world, including our own. Uh, the pandemic showed us that there are triggers and there are moments when these things get even worse. Uh, they're inexcusable, they're wrong, and they need to be ended. And it's, it's such a powerful opportunity for us to, to, to come together and, and have these conversations and, and to really shine a spotlight and to hear the the real stories and, the, and understand from a very deep personal perspective what it means and how it can impact people throughout their lives. And we, as I say, in this country, and it was nicely reflected from the back of the room earlier about the, the journey that we've been on, but we're nowhere near the end of that journey, here or anywhere else. And it takes extraordinarily powerful women, extraordinarily courageous women, to come forward to challenge systems that are holding them back, that are blocking progress, that are allowing the perpetration of violence and, and a wide range of other gender inequalities to persist. And that courage is so inspirational and so uh, powerful. And the reflection that we absolutely must have men in this conversation. I think somebody said we're only starting to have that conversation even here now. Uh, I've been really inspired in visits that I've had, uh, both to Kenya and other countries in the region, of the way women have pushed their way through, because it's a big, big barrier to get into that room and to get to that, to get to that podium and to be able to speak truth to the local power, which has been you know, something that you've grown up with, something that your mother and your father kind of agreed with and so on. So it takes tremendous courage and, and imagination and, and ability to push through. And we've been inspired always in the way we've, we've seen um, women like Jane and communities like hers push through and make a difference. As Oxfam, we see gender justice and women's equality as an absolute central part of all of our work. It's in the heart of every single thing that we do. And it must be, because unless we have gender equality, we cannot progress on all of the other key and important issues that need to happen in order for the world to become a better place and a, a better place for everybody. And there, there were some interesting parallels and interesting pieces that came up as parts of, of your powerful story, Jane. And you mentioned about the political situation and about the men-only situation. And we as Oxfam have been working with communities and with women's leadership groups across the region and across various countries to looking to get more parliamentarians elected. So just for example, we have, a, we have a powerful campaign in Malawi. And in the last year or so, there have been more 
women elected to parliament in Malawi than at any time in history. And they have not just been elected, but they've been promoted into some of the most powerful positions, attorney general roles and all those key uh, governmental roles. So that comes from a deeply uh, grassroots community program of women-led, but with male allies pushing this agenda. Apolitical, so it doesn't matter of the political persuasion, but just as long as we have strong women and pushing their way into the thing. Long way to go in this country too, by the way. 23% women in the Oireachtas, it's, it's, it's shameful and embarrassing. So, you know, I suppose my takeaway from a lot of that is that we have to understand that these are universal challenges and that we all in the room, whether it be because we support the work, because you support the work that we do in, in other countries or because of th what we need to do in our own lives here at home, it has to be something that we take very deeply to heart. And then on gender-based violence itself, I suppose, as well as the, the working to support women's organisations uh, like the Simbura Women's Trust, we've also worked with police in training. We have police desks that we have sponsored to make sure that there are safe spaces for women to come and to, to report, to be able to talk about these, these issues in a safe way, not to be judged, not to be reported back to the husband or the community. Um, we have worked very extensively with men and women together. So I've, I've been in, in extraordinary situations in villages where um, men are standing up in front of other men saying, I will not do this. I will not allow this to happen. That takes a certain amount of courage for men too. So we do need them as partners. We need to see men as partners in this journey and, and in the change that we need to make. The other, I mean, there, there's so many intersectional challenges that you've described between climate violence, economic challenges, and patriarchy. And I think the, the cultural piece that you mentioned is, is one of the most difficult ones to break. And we know that culture change takes time. And again, I think it was very well reflected by people in the room here, how much we need to put a mirror in front of ourselves in order to understand the culture change that needs to happen within ourselves, in our society, and then how we can not come and work in other countries in a judgmental frame of mind, but more in a supportive one and more in a, an empathetic one where we understand actually this is our journey too. And this is the journey that we want to come on together. And maybe we've learned some things along the way that we might be able to support with. Equally, we can learn from you too. So it's that sense of that partnership. And when I speak about partnership, Oxfam is a, is a partnership-led organization. So our work is driven and led by partner organizations uh, like Jane's. And just to, I suppose, to remind people on the trip that Juliet and the, and the RTE and the team went on, um, which was really to highlight the humanitarian crisis that's happening in that region, uh, heavily climate-driven, um, that m most of our partners in, in that country are the ones that lead the humanitarian response. So there's a perception sometimes that it is the big northern NGO type that parachutes in and solves the problems. And, and of course, we have a, an important role to play in that. We have scale, we have access to funds, we can do things like that. But our commitment as Oxfam is to work through partners. Partners, people on the ground, are always the first responders. They're the ones that are there when something happens. We, of course, are an important part of the, the wider community that can support, can amplify and can scale that up. But at the end of the day, it's vital that the partners themselves are leading and, and we make sure to facilitate that and let that happen. And as part of our, I suppose, our wider campaigning and our, our um, public work, we very intentionally try to seed position, try to seed space, 
to organizations like Jane's. So Jane was in the Oireachtas this week uh, telling the, the Foreign Affairs Committee, uh, reflecting on the, on the recent COP and the impact it has and the, and the loss and damage and those kinds of important moments that happened. And we were very proud that Jane was there speaking on behalf of her community rather than somebody like me speaking on behalf or trying to channel something that isn't, isn't true. Isn't true to me, it's, true. it's the lived experience of Jane and her community. And that is the way that we are progressing as an organisation. And we have a distance to go, but we believe this is the right thing to do. The question of climate justice, I think, is, is obviously interwoven within, within all of this work. I actually travelled with Mary Robinson and, and a former colleague of, of yours, Juliet, a number of years ago, when there was another food crisis and a drought in the region, and we met local pastoralists in Turkana. And, you know, with all the, the science that we thought we had, these people were able to demonstrate very, very clearly the difference in Turkana Lake over a period of 10 or 15 years. You know, this wasn't something that, that the science might have been telling people who were looking at it from this part of the world. This was the, very much the experience of people on the ground and understanding that something very dramatic is happening here, something that they have nothing to do with creating. And it's worth remembering that in the, the three countries that are most affected by the, the hunger and food crisis in East Africa right now, they contribute collectively about 0.3% of carbon to the world. So they didn't create this problem. And we need to remember that. And that's why we need to make the changes that have to be made here. We need to push our own governments to be more ambitious and to work harder and to acknowledge that there are challenges as well. And the other piece that I wanted to reflect on that is that, and I, I've also had this, this incredible privilege to, to be in communities in, in various countries in the, in the East African region, meeting with indigenous communities who actually are already mitigating and adapting and have done it in, in the most natural and practical way. And this is, I think, a very strong message from some other work that you've done, Jane, which I think is worth, worth having a look at if you get a chance, is talking about the power and the, the practical nature of indigenous peoples and how they are already accommodating climate change and how they're already doing everything they can to prevent it from getting worse. So this kind of, again, assumption that, you, that everything is to be learned from here is nonsense. And we all know this, but I think we need to keep calling it out and we need to keep saying it. So look, there's a lot to reflect on. It's been a real pleasure having you, Jane. You're a, a very powerful and inspirational person to, to be amongst us. And we're very grateful. You came through the, the cold and the, and the wind and all the rest of it. She has a hot water bottle over there to keep her warm. <laughs> Uh, but it's, it's been so important to us and I hope that people here have enjoyed it. I just want to say a few thank yous. Um, very strong thank you to Irish Aid who have now left the room but who are a, a long-term partner of ours over many, many years and it's, obviously there's a, fund, there's a funding relationship but it's much more than that. There's a strategic relationship across a whole range of issues. We've worked with them on the, uh, on the UN Security Council and the, the work that Ireland has done over the last two years uh, and, and as well as, you know, working in country. It was really powerful to have Minister Brophy uh, with us earlier in the summer, at the end of the summer. And I, I do know that that trip was really impactful in the way that he and the Irish government viewed what was happening in the region. So it's an important, important piece to remember. I want to really thank you, Juliet, not just for today. I mean, but your visit in September was not simple. It was not easy. It was, I know, you know, Juliet's a very serious professional, professional journalist, but everybody's a human being as well. And when you, when you experience things that are new to you, 
they can have particularly very challenging situations when you when you witness people and bear witness to the suffering of others. It can have a profound personal impact too, and I know that that you you bore that with with great great dignity and great humanity throughout the time that you were there, and the reports that you had had a huge impact here. We've been trying to cut through on the story of the both the climate crisis and the food crisis in East Africa for months and months and months. But because of the war in Ukraine and because of all the other things that are happening, it was almost impossible. And uh, you did a really powerful job, Juliet. And just want to say thanks very much for that. Really appreciate it. So finally, I just want to thank our supporters, our donors, our friends who are here today. Um, you've been with us, some of you, for a very long time. It's a, it's a, we're so grateful to you. I mean, the funding and support we get from Irish Aid is vital, but the funding, support, friendship, campaigning, uh, commitment that you bring to us uh, not only supports our work, but it also inspires us and pushes us a bit harder to go that extra yard and to keep pushing the organisation to, to do better, to be better. And we're very grateful. There's a, an African proverb which says, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go with others. So we're on the journey together. We've come a distance. We have a long way to go, but we, we're moving in the right direction. And that's very much thanks to you and, and all of your amazing support. So again, just to say thanks very much, everyone. Uh, a, a particular Asante Sana to Jane. Mm, uh, I hope you've enjoyed the, this session. I hope it's been helpful and interesting for you. Hopefully we'll do more during the course of next year now that we're all allowed out, which is really a relief. But just say thanks very much, and it's great to have you all here. Thank you.